there and welcome to Power Play. I'm Vashi Capellos. Tonight, Canadians are still trapped in Gaza. So far, only one Canadian appears to be among the hundreds of foreign nationals to make it out of Gaza as the border crossing at Egypt opens to let them out. We're going to talk to someone fighting to get her loved ones out and taking that ask right to the Prime Minister himself. That's in moments. Then, the NDP announces they will vote with the Tories on carbon tax carve-outs. Given that the Conservatives uh, for once have actually offered a motion that doesn't deny climate change, um, we will be supporting that motion. The NDP comes out in support of Conservative leader Pierre Polyev's motion to take the carbon tax off all home heating costs. PEI's Premier will be here to talk about those carve-outs and the front bench will have a lot to say about the NDP's move just ahead. Plus, pressure on the Prime Minister. Who wants you to quit? <laughs> oh, well, I, I, I uh, wish him all the best. Is Justin Trudeau heading for a leadership challenge? The front bench is also on tap to talk about that a bit later on in the program. First, though. More than 400 Canadians are trapped in Gaza, including Ahmed Al-Hilo of Edmonton. Recovering from surgery, unable to transport himself, First, he was told by Canadian authorities to stay where he is, then to evacuate to Rafa, then to stay put again, as Canadians may not be allowed to cross into Egypt. While this government ignores calls for a ceasefire, Ahmad is struggling to survive. And today we've learned that not a single Canadian is on the evacuation list. Why isn't Canada advocating for the lives of Canadians in Gaza. Yesterday, we saw the first wave of foreign nationals leave. I want to reassure Canadians that we are in regular close contact with Egypt and Israel to push for Canadians to leave as soon as possible. The government facing pointed questions there on why only one Canadian appears to be among the hundreds of foreign nationals granted passage out of Gaza. There are 450 Canadians registered with the federal government who have asked for help getting out. For some more perspective on what's happening there and the need to get those Canadians out, Reem Sultan is here. Ms. Sultan recently lost loved ones in Gaza and is looking for ways to help family and friends still there. Yesterday, she met with the Prime Minister to try and do exactly that. Hi, Ms. Sultan. Good to have you with us. Thank you very much for making the time. Thank you for having me. I, we, ha we just mentioned in the introduction, you do have loved ones in Gaza. I'm wondering what it's like, what it has been like over the past two days to watch people leave from other countries, but, but not Canadians. Um, no words can describe uh, how it feels to know that your loved ones can't leave when everybody else is leaving. Um, I have my dear friend, Ihab, that um, my best friend's husband, who has uh, three children here that are waiting for him anxiously, so afraid, can't sleep at night with nightmares, wanting their dad back, and he hasn't heard anything. I have my dear friend Samah, her father is also, who is elderly, stuck in the north, unable to come because the, the road is blown. And again, nobody's reaching out to him. It's sheer frustration and, and, and anger at this moment because the, the, the names for the third day have come out and it doesn't look like Canadians are on that for the third day. I know that you spoke directly to the Prime Minister about this last night. You met with him and you asked him, you told me on my radio program earlier, you asked him why other countries had people on those lists and, and why not Canada. Did you get anything in the way of an answer to that question? No, nothing that, no, no it, 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 it felt to me that th there was a promise that they're going to come out, but, um, and, and that they're working on it, but there's nothing concrete that we can 
um, that we can take walk away with. And and as you're waiting, you know, minute by minute, um, it it is it is constant bombardment. Anybody can. There's no safe place, and any can anybody can die at any moment. We're racing against time to get people out that otherwise may perish. And these are Canadian citizens. I, I don't understand. They are telling us what to do. Samah's father is telling her, tell people in Canada that they have to connect with the Red Cross so that I can get to the border. Otherwise, I won't be able to get to the border. It should not be left to Samah's father to be communicating this to us so that we can be communicating it with the Canadian government. The Canadian government sent a task force, like all the other countries, like the U.S., have been able to get the U.S. have been able to get their their uh, citizens out. Um, Australia, uh, European nations, other nations. Why are Canadians not coming out? What, what, why? I just don't understand. Do you have any sense from the conversation you had with the prime minister about why that may be the case and what could potentially uh, change that going forward, if in fact there are, you know, these periods each day going forward where people are able to leave? So we pleaded with him. He listened to all of us with our um, pleas of, of help to get our Canadian citizens out. But he said that it's just there's no safe um, passages. And, and, and logistically, yes, we understand there's no safe passages. That's why we're asking you and pleading with you to call for a ceasefire so that there is peace so that we can get our citizens out. But even with that, there's no promise for, for a ceasefire. And I, I don't, I'm, I'm, with all the horrific things that are happening there with like the, the, the UN person that resigned and said that this is a textbook genocide case. I don't know why we're not calling for a ceasefire. I don't know why we're not getting our citizens out when, when other nations got their citizens out. It leaves us to think that we are second class citizens. There is a, a growing anger and a growing frustration and a, and a growing uh, disbelief that Canada is unable to get its citizens out and that the prime minister is more concerned about the safety uh, and uh, for the, more concerned about Israel's right to self-defense than his citizens getting out of Gaza. This is the frustration. So that leaves us with unimaginable feeling, feeling un-Canadian, feeling less Canadian, feeling less human, and that should never be the case. So I feel that this has been a failure on the government, on the, um, you know, uh, the uh, Ministry of Foreign Affairs, Minister Jolie, and on the Prime Minister. There's no explanation that day three has come is coming and no Canadians are out. It, it, there's no explanation. The logistics need to be worked out. And we're telling you, we're telling the media what the logistics are. So please, Minister Jolie, the task force that you have, need to communicate with the Red Cross or the Red Crescent there to get the people that are stuck in the north that can't leave because the roads are blown up. We need our loved ones home. We're waiting for them. It has been sheer hell. Please get them out. You know, there is a double standard, I ha and I have to call it. I'm sorry that I have to call it. Our citizens, uh, Canadian citizens that were in Tel Aviv were shipped with, were, were taken by military uh, uh, planes into Greece, into hotels, and then into Canada. That's wonderful. That's what we should do. That's what any country should do for its citizens. What about the ones in, in Gaza? 
Ms. Silton, I have to leave it there. I can tell this is not easy. I do appreciate you during such a really hard time making time to talk to Canadians about this. Thank you. Thank you. Re that's Reem Sultan. We're going to turn to uh, another story unfolding, this one on Parliament Hill today. The government's Atlantic-focused carbon tax carve-outs continue to dominate debate on the Hill. The Liberal Rural Affairs Minister said, well, other people should have elected Liberal MPs if they wanted to be able to afford heating their home or feeding their kids. The Prime Minister has not denounced that viewpoint. This approach will not just give them a break, but in working with the government of Ontario, will deliver heat pumps uh, for Canadians right across the country. I invite Saskatchewan to work with us as well. We need to get Canadians off home heating oil. That's what we're going to do. Conservative leader Pierre Polyev uh, has a motion in which he's calling on the government to suspend the carbon tax on all home heating costs. Last week, they suspended it for home heating oil, a high-polluting source of heat predominantly used in Atlantic Canada, meaning it's an announcement that most Canadians outside of that region won't be able to cash in on. Plus, this political twist, the NDP has just announced they're going to support the Tories' motion. Given the panicked reaction from the Liberals seemingly tied to their, their polling standing in, in Atlantic Canada, given that the Conservatives uh, for once have actually offered a motion that doesn't deny climate change. Um, we will be supporting that motion. So the front bench, including former NDP leader Tom Mulcair, will be here a little bit later on this program to weigh in on that decision that you just heard there from Peter Julian. First, though, to talk more about the car votes in general and the debate they've generated, I'm joined now by PEI's Premier Dennis King. Premier King, pleasure to welcome you to the show. Thanks for making the time. Thanks for making time for me, Vashi. Good to be back with you. Let me start off and just ask, what does this three-year pause specifically on the carbon tax on home heating oil, what does it mean for PEI? How impactful will it be for your province? Yeah, it means a lot. And it's why we fought so hard to have the federal government not impose uh, the carbon tax on home heating fuel. We still have over 50% of island homes that heat with home heating fuel. Uh, adding 17 cents a liter of carbon tax was making an already high price of furnace oil that much higher and adding to the challenges that islanders have with the affordability crisis that we're dealing with in general as Canadians. So uh, it, it will certainly help. I, I'm, I'm, I'm sad we had to go down this path and now there's this divisive debate taking place across the country uh, because, you know, as, as Atlantic Canadians, as, as islanders, we have been a very active participant in reducing our greenhouse gases and reducing our carbon footprint. Uh, we've been leaders in the country. And, and uh, uh, you know, I, I wish there was more focus on that part of the debate. Well, well, let me just ask you for your sense of it, because you're going to head, of course, you're meeting your counterparts from across the country in person in a few days in Halifax. You're going to be as familiar as all our viewers by now over the last week at the kind of reaction from other parts of the country who say, what about the rest of the sources of heating? Why not exempt us uh, if you're going to do that for home heating oil? Would you be supportive of that ask? Yeah, Vashi, I don't know enough about the, the situation in other provinces, uh, uh, you know, vis-a-vis -vis the cost that individual, uh, you know, Canadians and other provinces are dealing with. Uh, we don't have natural gas here. In P I don't know what the price or what the cost of that is. But I would always be very supportive of any initiative that could reduce the cost of living and the cost of daily life for Canadians uh, all across our wonderful country. Uh, and to do so as long as we continue to have our focus on reducing carbon, 
and uh, and making our our country as as clean and green as it can be. So for sure, I would be. If the issue is affordability, I, I'm just curious um, why the pause on the carbon tax was necessary. If in fact. Let's say the feds had said we're going to double the rebate or we're going to make it. So, you know what I mean? We're going to address the affordability issue through the rebate versus uh, breaking with this policy that we've had for, for as long. And we've maintained we have to have for as long as we've had. Would that not have made the same kind of dent? I think the difference in Atlantic Canada has been that there has been a carve out of home heating fuel right up until the most recent uh, mm-hmm. uh, decision by the federal government to change that and to add uh, the carbon tax to home heating fuel. Uh, so we have been fighting as Islanders and as Atlantic Canadians, as, as Atlantic premiers, to say you don't need to put that back in place. We need a little bit more time uh, because a carbon price by design is to price something to the point where it's unaffordable and you look for other options. And our challenge, what we've been talking about from the very beginning in PEI and beyond is we don't have those other alternatives. We're working hard on heat pumps. We're trying to electrify as quickly as we can to reduce our reliance on home heating fuel. We've been very successful at that, but we also need to make sure our electrical grid is sustainable, that we're able to deliver this service to to Islanders so it's reliable, uh, and we're doing all of this in real time. So, uh, you know, I I think that is another part of the debate that has been lost here. This was a carve-out before. Uh, The federal government stepped in in the most recent negotiation and added to uh, the cost, and now they've backed off on it again. As you move towards electrification and converting uh, to heat pumps, do you anticipate that can happen in three years? Well, I mean, we probably now have, uh, in the last two years, have added about 9,000 island homes with a free heat pump. We have another probably close to 2,000 that have been a part of our incentive program. So we haven't paid the full cost of that, but we've helped Islanders adapt. Uh, We are now working to get to a threshold that a household under $100,000 can now qualify for a free heat pump. So we're we're working as fast as we can. Uh, What our numbers will look like over the next 12, 24, and 36 months, I think it will depend on on the sustainability of our electrical grid, making sure that we can do this reliably. There was a day last uh, February when it was really, really cold here in the country, and we were well above what would be a comfortable level in terms of our ability to provide electricity for Islanders. So as we add heat pumps, we have to make sure we're adding to the sustainability of our grid. It's a very complicated process, I know, uh, but uh, we're working as fast as we can. Uh, What we've been asking for from the federal government is a willing partner to work with us so we can reach the shared goals that we have as Islanders and Canadians. I guess what I wonder, as you lay out the complexities, though, is there a world in which you're going to be at the end of those three years? I mean, who knows who's in government then, but still at the end of those three years, asking for additional years of an exemption of the carbon tax on home heating oil. Like, is that possible? Yeah, uh, and Vashi, it's a very good question. I'm not sure I have the answer for that. Uh, As I say, heat pumps are a big part of our conversion to get people off of home heating, but we have very innovative uh, solutions here that we're working on. As you know, we talked before about uh, transit and all of these things that we're doing here in PEI to be innovative, to do our part. We're leaders in the reduction of carbon uh, in our greenhouse footprint here. We're we're really working as hard as we can. Whether or not we will be totally off of uh, home heating fuel in three years, I, I don't know if I can say that comfortably now. We will be much further advanced, and uh, I think people are working really diligently in government and in the private sector to end that reliance as soon as we can. 
Uh, and But there is a process to get there. And I think that's what we're trying to tell our federal partners is we need a little bit of patience to get there. We're not fighting them. We want to work with them. We share the goals here. We just need a little help to make sure that uh, Islanders and Atlantic Canadians can do this affordably and have a comfortable way of transitioning uh, to a reliable source. Okay, Premier, I'm out of time. I have to leave it there. I do appreciate your time as always, though. Thank you. Always great to be on with you, Vashi. Thank you very much. Thank you. PEI's Premier Dennis King. And yes, as promised, the front bench will soon be here to talk about those carbon tax carve-outs. Christy Clark, John Tory, and Tom Mulcair form our panel this evening. Up next, though, more on the war unfolding in the Middle East. As U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken heads to the region again, we're going to gauge U.S. posture on the war with David Frum and Brian Stelter after a very short break. Stay right there. More Power Play ahead. We've seen in recent days Palestinian civilians continue to bear the brunt of this, uh, this action. Uh, and it's important that the United States is committed to making sure everything possible is done to protect civilians. Um, at the same time, we're determined that this conflict not spread, and we'll be talking to both uh, the Israeli government and partners in the region uh, about what all of us are doing to prevent that from happening. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken, as you saw there, is headed back to the Middle East. The White House says part of what he's there to do is press for more humanitarian pauses that could allow more foreign nationals out of Gaza. Meanwhile, the House of Representatives is gearing up for a big vote on aid for Israel with a brand new speaker in the chair. For more on all of that, Vanity Fair special correspondent Brian Stelter is here, as is the Atlantic staff writer David Fromm. Hi, David. Hi, Brian. Great to see you both. Uh, David, I'll start with you. How important is it for uh, Secretary Blinken to return to the region in person, do you think? Um, as the secretary said, this is a lot of this is about preventing this spreading. Um, uh, Iran is um, at the center of this conflict. It's got proxies in Lebanon. Um, there have been long-range missiles fired by Iranian proxies in Yemen into Israel at an enormous distance. Um, and Iran has other targets, too, in the region. And as it has previously attacked the United Arab Emirates. There, there are some... There are some very scary possibilities here, and the United States is trying to uh, keep them under control. The Secretary of State, Brian, was talking about that objective, right, trying to do whatever they can to avoid the war spreading, and then also continuing to uh, negotiate for these so-called humanitarian pauses, right? We've seen a, a couple of them over the past few days, which allows a number of foreign nationals, including some Americans, only one Canadian at this point, to get out of Gaza. Uh, how difficult do you anticipate those types of conversations are at this moment? Uh, almost impossible, because uh, as we see, the bombardment of Gaza continues day and night and is especially ramped up just in the past couple of hours, according to some of the very few live pictures that we're able to see from Gaza. Uh, this is, of course, made more difficult by the lack of visibility, the lack of ability to actually see inside uh, that area at any given time. And the reports we get out are very scattershot, but are very, very disturbing. Um, uh, I think that in some ways you know, does put more public pressure on the Biden administration and on Netanyahu's administration and on the IDF. Uh, but, you know, what we've seen so far is that the Biden administration is willing, at least in public, to give a lot of latitude to the Israelis. Yeah, I wanted to ask about the posture of the Biden administration, David. Uh, in addition to some public pressure, there's a, you know, a small portion of the of the Democratic Party as well 
that is not on side with the position that, that the president has expressed so far. What is your assessment of the way in which uh, the president and, and his uh, team are navigating that? Well, in the past month, if you ask the question, in the conflict in the Middle East, are you more sympathetic to Israel or more sympathetic to the Palestinians? The answers range from three to one for Israel to five to one for Israel. So the president has the public massively behind the posture he's taken, and there's probably a lot of room to be even more pro-Israel than the president has been, although he's been very pro-Israel. Um, uh, there are efforts in, uh, in the progressive um, quarters of his party to push him in a different direction and say to him, we, we've got some poll of people in a certain state who are between a certain age and certain age, and they don't feel the way the general public does. But the reason Biden won the nomination, his party's nomination in 2020 and won the presidency, was he, he was pretty good at not letting uh, the progressive corners of his party to push him into unsustainable positions and to remain always connected where the broad majority of Americans are, and that is with Israel. What's your sense of that, Brian? I think that's absolutely true. There have been protests and marches and calls for a ceasefire, and a lot of that energy is coming from the progressive left in the United States. I interviewed Naomi Klein, of course, the famous Canadian uh, intellectual about this uh, yesterday. You know, she, she's been at some of those events. Um, th there is some energy there. However, David's right about the polling. The polling shows that the broad majority of Americans are with the Biden administration on this right now. I wanted to ask about how this is kind of unfolding as far as an aid package goes as well and what's happening with Congress, David, because we are attempting in Canada, I think, to follow the bouncing ball, but it, it does at times become a little bit difficult. The House has a new speaker and he is bent, it seems, on making sure that the House considers an aid package solely for Israel instead of aid tied to, for example, Ukraine as well. Can you explain why that is the case? He's not, he's not a bit serious about that. Um, so here's, here's the basic grammar of the situation. <laughs> Three quarter, the overwhelming majority of the senators of the Senate, maybe 90, and three quarters of the House want to help Ukraine, just so that everybody wants to help Israel. This speaker, unfortunately, comes from the anti-Ukraine, pro-Trump wing of the party, which is the smaller half of the Republican House of Representatives. They're split almost exactly evenly, slightly more Republicans for Ukraine than against, and three quarters of the whole House in favor of Ukraine. And he's not all that crazy about Israel either, because his proposal for Israel is a stunt. He said, I will, I will allow $14 billion for Israel, which is a, a big ask for Israel. But Ukraine needs more if the Biden administration de defunds the IRS, including abolishing a to file their income taxes for free online without paying for computer software. Why Israel aid has to be held hostage to the TurboTax lobby, I don't know, but that's what he has done. It's not a serious proposal, and the Senate rightly is rejecting it. Friends of Israel are rejecting it and say, Israel needs its help. Ukraine needs a much bigger package, $65 billion the president has asked for Ukraine. Uh, we need to do something about the border, of course. Um, and uh, friends in the Indo-Pacific region need some help, too. So all of that, put it all together, one package, one vote, do it now. No tricks, no stunts. And, and don't, give into, don't hold all of this hostage to your friends at TurboTax. What do we need to know about this speaker and his potential propensity for tricks or stunts, Brian, and how that may impact uh, how the business of the House is conducted going forward. He is playing politics. And when you say, what do we need to know about the speaker? What do we need to know? I'm tempted to say he doesn't know what he's doing. He doesn't know what he's doing because he is a novice when it comes to the leadership of uh, this party and of this institution. Uh, that's the reason why he was able to cobble together the votes. 
he didn't have any uh, very many enemies within the House Republican caucus and within the conference. He didn't have many enemies because he just wasn't very well known. He's almost like an avatar. He came out of nowhere. And so with that in mind, I think we should be very skeptical uh, about whether he has the, the, the stomach, the gut uh, to actually lead, to lead this institution, because it does seem with this Israel aid package, the number one goal he had was to uh, appear to unify Republicans, get them all on the same page, and divide Democrats. He was trying to divide Democrats uh, with this Israel aid vote, uh, 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 unattaching it from the Ukraine uh, aid. So, you know, that is a stunt. Uh, most people have seen through it. And, uh, um, you know, I think we should be very skeptical about uh, how he approaches this down the road. Okay, I'm going to leave it there. Appreciate both of you making the time for this conversation, David Fromm and Brian Stelter. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Up next on Power Play, Ontario's deficit swells. We're going to show you by how much, along with your political roundup in the list right after a very short break. Welcome back to Power Play on this Thursday evening. It's time for the list, a roundup of what's happening in politics today. The special inquiry into foreign interference is now underway, according to a statement released by the person leading that inquiry, Justice Marie Hogue. Justice Hogue says the inquiry will be divided into two phases. The first focused on the alleged actions of states like China and Russia and an evaluation of the federal government's response. The second phase will focus on the capacity of the government's departments to deal with foreign interference more broadly and going forward. Justice Hogue says she expects public hearings to start early in the new year. Parliament's budget watchdog has a new report out, and this one focuses on the ever-ballooning costs of replacing Canada's aging fighter jets. According to the PBO, owning and operating the replacements, a fleet of 80, 88 F-35 fighter jets could cost as much as $73.9 billion over the next four decades. The PBO's analysis is broadly in line with the government's most recent figures, but a great distance from what the original estimate was 13 years ago at $29 billion. Deliveries of those fighter jets will start in 2026, with the last delivery expected in 2032. And as we deal with the uncertainty ahead, Mr. Speaker, our government will never hesitate to do what is necessary to support the people and businesses of Ontario. The Ontario government is forecasting larger than anticipated deficits in the fall economic statement, a mini budget of sorts. Eight months after promising to balance the budget by 2025, the province is now projecting a $5.6 billion deficit for 2023-24. That's a big increase from the $1.3 billion deficit forecast in this year's budget back in March. That'll be followed by a $5.3 billion deficit in 2024-25 and a surplus of $500 million, the projections are showing right now at least, in 2026. The front bench is standing by after a very short break. Christy Clark, John Tory, and Tom Mulcair will be here to talk about those carbon tax carve-outs and the latest development. The NDP says it'll vote with the Tories to expand that carve-out. We're back in just a moment at the front bench.
Liberal MPs in Sudbury, Thunder Bay, North Bay, Sault Ste. Marie, they have starving constituents who are worried about the heat going out as well. Will they have a free vote on my motion to keep the heat on and take the tax off? We're phasing out the use of coal because it's dirty and bad for the environment. We're now moving on phasing out home heating oil. He didn't answer the question as to whether or not his MPs would have a free vote. We're moving forward to replace them with heat pumps, uh, working with the provinces to deliver free uh, heat pumps for lower-income families so that they can save money and fight pollution at the same time. Will he confirm whether or not he considers my motion to keep the heat on and take the tax off a confidence vote. The leader of the opposition uh, is making a serious mistake if he thinks uh, that Canadians are not concerned about the environment. So it's been one full week since the Liberals announced big carbon tax carve-outs and one full week of opposition and provincial backlash against that move. The feds have suspended the carbon tax on home heating oil for three years, a heat source predominantly used in Atlantic Canada and one rather that is much more polluting than natural gas or electric heating. Now, Pierre Polyev is calling on the House to support his motion to remove the tax from all home heating costs. And late today, the NDP announced it would support that motion. Have a listen. Given the panicked reaction from the Liberals, seemingly tied to their, their polling standing in, in Atlantic Canada, given that the Conservatives uh, for once have actually offered a motion that doesn't deny climate change, um, we will be supporting that motion. All right, so let's unpack that with our front bench. With me this evening, former BC Premier Christy Clark. She's a senior advisor with Bennett Jones. Former Toronto Mayor John Tory and CTV News political analyst and former NDP leader Tom Mulcair. Hi, everybody. Great to see you. Happy Thursday. Hi. Tom, I'll start, I'll start with you on this one because I can't remember the last time the NDP supported something explicitly that the Tories wanted. How significant do you think that is? I think it's an important move, and it also shows that Pierre Poitiev isn't just clever at going after Justin Trudeau's votes. He's also starting to eat into the vote of the NDP in exactly the type of area that he mentioned in the clip that we just listened to. So, yes, the NDP is paying attention to pocketbook issues as well. They understand that the carbon tax has an overarching great purpose, which is to reduce the amount of greenhouse gases produced in Canada. But at the same time, there are parts of what Mr. Trudeau announced out of the blue one week ago exactly that are very difficult to follow, to be charitable about it. How is it possible to remove the carbon tax on something that pollutes the most and keep the carbon tax on natural gas, which produces far less pollution? So the whole theory behind this was to go after the things that pollute the most and reduce it. But there was a reason for them not to do it, as was just explained. They're in political trouble, any port in a storm. They're going to try to wing, <laughs> wing their way out of this thing with all sorts of explanations about heat pumps being given to families. I'm really anxious to see, Vashi, how much of that actually turns out to be true. It's Justin Trudeau in a lot of trouble. I've never seen him paint himself into a corner like this. He's usually very good himself, and he's definitely always had a good team. But on this one, it's just a total debacle for them. Your, your three great political minds and strategic minds, John, it, it, or does, it, does it seem to you as though they did not fully anticipate what the backlash would be like, not just from the opposition, which you can assume, but really from other parts of the country as well? 
You know, I think it's maybe that they were thinking you can never go wrong doing the right thing. Uh, but that actually, that's not true. There can be times in politics in any event <laughs> when doing the right thing is not the right thing to do. I mean, meaning politically. And I think that, um, you know, how could they not have anticipated that this was going to cause a massive firestorm in other parts of the country, depending on how you heated your home? I mean, they did some right things. I mean, the greater recognition of the fact rural Canadians can't get on a transit system or, you know, in many cases can't get natural gas to heat their homes is is, is a, a belated recognition. Uh, but to, to do it in this way, and I think the real thing to watch here is going to be, um, you know, whether um, the caucus holds together. And I don't just mean in a parliamentary vote. Uh, and for that matter, the cabinet. I mean, they, they've now, uh, you know, tinkered with, if that's the right word, maybe worse than that, uh, their signature policy. And there are people in that cabinet who believe very strongly in that policy, uh, very strongly. And, you know, if you got a resignation uh, from caucus or cabinet, I mean, a few votes in a parliamentary vote uh, is not great, to say the least. So I just think part of it is the speed with which they're reacting to what is undoubtedly some discontent. Uh, in the caucus, and I understand why, because of polls and otherwise, but they're doing it quickly and as a result don't seem to think through things that maybe are quite obvious. Christy, John makes a good point about uh, some of the members around the cabinet table who would be upset at the idea of a, of a carve-out at all. I would imagine that includes the Environment Minister, Stephen Gibault, who about a month before this announcement uh, was made, when Alberta was asking for a carve-out <coughs> on net zero for the electricity grid, said, you can't, that would just be unfair, <laughs> right? I'm wondering to what degree you think that might have informed the Prime Minister coming out a few days after this announcement and saying no more carve-outs. Well, I think absolutely. He started a, a run on premiers and provinces rightly wanting carbots for themselves based on the way that the, the things that are unique in each of their jurisdictions. Uh, you know, and I think Tom is absolutely right about the New Democrats. They are in the fight of their lives for working people because Pierre Polyev is just, you know, he's got this low tax bigger wallets, less regulation message, and working people are really flocking to that away from the NDP. So I got that on the one side. And on the other side, the thing that I thought was really most notable about this, and I think probably explains part of the really strong reaction that the public has had to it, is that the one thing that uh, Justin Trudeau has been consistently good at, I think, is showing that he had real resolve around the environment, that he really cared about it, that he was absolutely determined to make sure that he protected these as values and principles. And I think the character uh, hit that he took from this, that he, that he gave himself uh, by backing away from that and proving that he's just a guy who cares about getting elected and he doesn't really care that much about his environmental policy at the end of the day, I think that's really what's hurting him. It's not the speed of it. It's not even the details of it. I think it's really become a Justin Trudeau character issue when the going gets tough. Justin Trudeau chucks his principles out the window. That's an interesting point. And we're going to talk, Tom, in the next segment about some of the kind of open discussion that's happening right now about his leadership of the party. Uh, your thoughts overall, though, on kind of jumping off what Christy said, the larger implications for his credibility, for the party and the government's credibility on climate, given that, just like Christy said, right, like this was the thing he didn't bend on. For years and for months when the affordability crisis was peaking, you know, it, it, they were insistent, his ministers and himself, that this marquee part of their policy was necessary in order to achieve our targets. It was indeed necessary because otherwise we will never achieve our targets. But the problem for Trudeau is exactly the one you identified, Ashley. It's credibility. 
So he was able to win in 2015 by promising to get serious on climate change. I was there with him in Paris for the signature of the Paris Accord. He had great you know, words in that hall. Canada is back and all that. Got back to Canada, had Stephen Harper's plan, targets and timeline. And even that he wasn't able to get done, even though he had laughed at those things during the campaign. He thumped Andrew Scheer on this issue a great deal. And he went after and won against uh, O'Toole as well pointing out the fact that they, they didn't really believe in the fight against climate change. This time around, you know, everybody's saying, well, to, well yeah, look, we've already had elections on, on climate and on carbon pricing and things like that. You know, we've already had those elections. The answer is yes, we have, but the liberals never got it done. And so now, and I really think it's smart, but Christy was saying before, you think of somebody like Stephen Gilbo, who's put a lot of his own credibility on the table, you know, not always easy because Trudeau has been very slow getting there. But now that they were finally almost there and they had something that could be shown in the, you know, the shop window to people who care about climate change and about the environment and sustainable development, they're removing it. So where does that leave them? It's a real lose-lose situation. And I think that that's why you've got that great smile on Pierre Poilievre as he goes after Trudeau on this one. Poilievre doesn't even have to prove anything. Everybody who knows the guy knows that he won't do anything to fight, fight climate change. It's not even the issue anymore. It's whether or not Trudeau did anything. And the answer is... No. John, is there a way uh, for the prime minister and the liberals to bounce back from something like this? Do you anticipate, for example, that they will get some resonance or, or some uptick in Atlantic Canada? Well, they better hope so, because uh, otherwise, why did you do that? But, you know, you're in the worst of all worlds. And I think Tom was just implying this a moment ago that you disappoint the people who were with you when you said we're going to stand firm on the environment. And I think Justin Trudeau was quoted this week as having said sometime in the past, I'd rather keep my integrity and lose than sacrifice it. And, you know, my political sort of integrity, my policy integrity. So now you have the people who believe fervently enough to actually assist in re-electing them, re-electing them, albeit with a minority, are upset. And then the people who are against the tax and who are, you know, are climate change deniers and all a host of other people, they'll just be delighted. And they weren't voting for him anyway. And so I don't know what you do to get out of this because you can't. I mean, if you reverse yourself, a, a debacle, as Tom described, it would become a worse debacle if you ever reversed yourself in Atlantic Canada. And again, some of these things were not uh, lacking in sense. I mean, like the, the heat pumps and. Uh, some of the attention to rural Canadians. I think the one thing as well that's happened since all of these discussions of the last several years is an affordability crisis. And, and you know, that is now uh, um, uh, layered on top of everything else at the very, very top. And I just don't think they reacted uh, well enough or fast enough to that. Uh, so it doesn't, uh, you know, now they're left with these kinds of knee seemingly knee-jerk uh, policy reactions that are one-off things instead of some kind of a comprehensive plan uh, to look at affordability measures, say, with the rebates. Right. Okay. I'm going to keep the conversation going. I'm just going to take a quick break. We are back, though, with Christy Clark, John Tory, and Tom Mulcair in just a few seconds. He's calling on you to step down. Sorry, for that? Senator Down, a former. Of Former staff before Jean oh, Percy. Percy oh, yeah. Down. How's he yeah. doing? He wants you to quit. <laughs> oh, well. I, I uh, wish him all the best in the work that he's doing. Is Justin Trudeau's leadership of the Liberal Party in trouble? Senator and former Liberal Chief of Staff for Prime Minister Jean Chrétien, Percy Down, is publicly questioning the 
prime minister's hold on the party. And high-profile potential challenger, former Bank of Canada and Bank of England Governor Mark Carney, told the Globe and Mail this week he hasn't ruled out a run at the top job. The front bench is back to talk about that. Christy Clark, John Tory, and Tom Mulcair. Is there anything to be made, Christy, of the fact that this is even being discussed publicly, that someone like Senator Down would write this type of an op-ed uh, instead of just saying it behind closed doors? There's a lot to be made about that, for sure. When this kind of talk becomes public, it's really hard to contain it. You never know who's coming next. You never, I mean, the, the danger is that once somebody pulls the bandwagon out of the, out of the barn, a whole bunch of people will start jumping on it. There's no doubt about that, I think. And, you know, Justin has been around a long time. He's had a very good long run so far. I don't think he, he probably doesn't want to go. He feel, probably feels like he has more he wants to do. But he's got some, you know, <clears throat> there are a few people in his cabinet who I think are quite sensible. I think that Francois-Philippe Champagne is, is sensible. I think that Anita Nand has really got her feet under her and, you know, probably, you know, they care about economic issues and growing the economy. So there are people who are sort of waiting in the wings to take over. I'm not sure Mark Carney is a fantastic candidate. Guys who have never done anything in politics, going straight for the top job, they almost always fail because politics is just profoundly different from business. You know, they doesn't have any experience at it. But I do think the horse is out of the barn now. It's a matter of time to see how long the prime minister can hold it together. It's possible, I guess, he could make it to the next election. But I don't know if it's entirely likely. Tom, he seems pretty intent, right? Anytime this conversation comes up, and you heard it even in the way he, he responded to that question about uh, Senator Downs' op-ed, he, he seems very much you know, clear on the fact that he, he, his intention is, is to stick around. And that has quelled kind of the public nature, at least so far, of a lot of the discussion among liberals, right? They, they talk about it quietly, but not in the open the way that Senator Down did this week. How significant do you think that is? Well, this goes all the way back to Teddy Roosevelt when at the beginning of what he wanted to be his last term, he said it was his last term, and he became a lame duck for four years. So Mr. Trudeau has absolutely no option but to say exactly what he's saying there. I'm sticking around. But I don't think that anybody who's looking at the whole horizon of Canadian politics right now believes for a second that Justin Trudeau has the slightest chance of being given a new mandate sometime in 24 or 25. And I do believe that people like Percy Down, I've had a chance to travel with him, meet with him. Wow, what an incredible guy. And, you know, he's simply saying openly what a lot of liberals have said to me on background. You know, they said, we're trying to send messages. You know, these are people who get a chance to talk to Justin Trudeau, telling them, you should look at this as your legacy mandate. You've accomplished this on child care and that on dental care, and you've done so many things. Uh, but, of course, he's going to be the, the one to decide, and he has won those elections, and they owe him a lot. With regard to Mark Carney, I differ uh, quite a bit in, in opinion from, uh, from Christy on him. I've had a chance to meet with him many times, both when he was the governor here in Canada and, of course, when he was in England, I, I kept in touch with him. And I was able to invite him twice to l'Université de Montréal, the University of Montreal, where I've been teaching, I'm still teaching. And he wowed the students. I had him into a, a graduate class, a large graduate class, uh, you know, 80 students. But we also had him into the university itself, spent a lot of time meeting with the students in, in, in economics. His French, by the way, has remained really good. Uh, and he's so engaging. He's working on these issues of climate change on reducing greenhouse gases. So he's got all of the economic side and all of the environmental side. And I would dare say the social side as well in the book that he put forward. So the real question for liberals is going to be, 
once they do start thinking about this, is which of the two people, because we can talk about Francois-Philippe Champagne or Anita Anand, but the real battle would be between Mark Carney and, of course, Christian Freeland. And the question would be, which of those two people has a real chance of defeating Pierre Poilievre? And that's the tough question that they're going to have to ask themselves. Trudeau, of course, would love to see a woman become the leader of the Liberal Party. Of the five parties in the House of Commons, actually, it's worth recalling, only the Liberals have never had a woman leader. So, I mean, that's something that they've got to change if they want to keep saying that they're progressives and, and that they're feminists. But Carney, again, has tons of skills that they need right now. And I think that he would give quite fits. And by the way, the most important problem the largest problem for, for Christia Freeland is she carries all the baggage of the Trudeau years with her. It's, yeah. it's impossible for her to dissociate well, herself from that. So the, I'm the, keeping an eye on Carney and Vince is going for it. The real question yeah, is it's, actually, it's, Tom Mulcair, can I sell you a federal Liberal Party membership today? <laughs> He's managing Mark Carney's, uh, Mark Carney's campaign. I, I was just going to quickly say, I think from the conversations I have with conservatives, uh, John, they would welcome both of those candidates for the reasons kind of outlined by, by each of our colleagues. Um, I think they feel as though Minister Freeland is very closely tied to the Trudeau brand at this point, not to say she couldn't ever deviate, but that she is at this point. And they, they look at Mark Kearney as in a similar way, and this may be wrong, but the way they do, to, to Michael Ignacev, right? That's the sort of view yeah. that they have, I mean, and they uh, seem I excited to take on. Uh, actually, I agree with all three. I mean, I think anybody's going to carry the baggage. You've seen elections before not that long ago where the public finished the job of defeating a leader who stepped aside, you know, just as they said, we want to make sure we send that message. Um, I agree, though, also with Tom that I think uh, Mark Carney is formidable. But I also agree with Christy that politics is not something you just come to, you know, from someplace in business or academe or anywhere else and pick up the, the political part of it, leaving aside your credentials. On the subject generally, I, I think the uh, Percy Down article nothing happens by accident as we all say in politics and so that article appearing is not insignificant he was a former chief of staff to mr kretchen uh so you know that's interesting i think the key is what we talked about a bit earlier which is you know if you see fishers real public fishers in the liberal caucus not just a vote in the house of commons but people speaking up and saying what senator down said or if you see the inevitable you know six riding presidents sending some letter in saying it's time uh, those are the major problems you have as a party leader, more so than what the pundits say or even one letter from a senator. So I think it's going to be the next little while and how the uh, carbon tax thing, you know, plays itself out and that kind of thing that's going to determine whether this picks up steam and goes beyond one article or whether it is something that maybe uh, peters out. Uh, I just don't know uh, what's going to happen. Yeah, that's the fun of it, right? That's the fun of politics. Thank you so much, all three of you. I really appreciate the discussion. Christy Clark, Tom Mulcair, and John Torrey, our front bench panel this evening. I do actually have a, a quick clip also of Minister Seamus O'Regan, who was asked about uh, Senator Downs' article. Have a listen to what he said. Job's you know, not it's vacant. A... Job's not vacant. Job is far from vacant. You know, job's far from vacant. The rest of it's just, I don't know, noise. And just to let you know, also, today's takeaway is all about uh, what the PEI premier told me around the carbon tax carve-outs. That pause on home heating oil is th three years. I asked him whether or not he's going to be able to get it all done in that time. Have a listen. We're really working as hard as we can. Whether or not we will be totally off of home heating fuel in three years, I don't know if I can say that comfortably now. We will be much further advanced, and I think people are working really diligently in government and in the private sector to end that reliance as soon as we can.
So that is PEI's premier, um, Dennis King, talking a little bit about how he plans to get off of heating oil in the province of PEI. It is one of the provinces that is most reliant on heating oil as a, a heating source. The debate, of course, has been all about whether or not that carve-out, that carbon tax carve-out, could be extended to the rest of the country. Uh, the premier, who is set to meet with his counterparts in person next week in Halifax, said that he did anticipate that that would be the case, that uh, it could, you know, he would support something like it being extended to other parts of the country. Uh, but he's kind of paying very close attention to the way the debate has unfolded. And he was upset a little bit, not upset, but disappointed that it had been framed as a fight against the federal government. He said he's looking to the federal government to work with him as a partner as they try to work toward moving off heating oil, oil rather, as one of the primary sources of heat in the province of PEI. That does do it for Power Play tonight. I'm Vashi Capellos. The debate with Mike Lucatur is coming up next right after your top headlines.